Welcome to the Psychosphere. I'm David Sutcliffe, and my guest today is Dr. Taylor Burroughs, PhD. Taylor is a former marriage, couples, and family therapist, now expert lifestyle, dating, and relationship consultant. I stumbled across Taylor a couple years ago on Twitter and was really impressed, not just by the wisdom and clarity of her perspective on dating and relationships, which I found refreshing, but by her willingness to contradict some of the dominant cultural narratives around gender dynamics, for which she has received a lot of pushback. In this episode, we talk about her philosophy and approach to helping people attract and build healthy and fulfilling relationships. We talk about gender roles, feminism, and the red pill. We talk about what it's like being perceived as controversial and how she handles her haters. And then she gives me some much needed and very sensible dating advice. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Taylor Burroughs. I was interested about your filmmaking career. Uh, I don't, you know, that that was sort of something that I did for a while, so. Oh, you did? Yeah, I don't yeah, know well, your background. Maybe we could start there. What, tell me a little sure. bit about, you know, where are you from? I'm from the Cayman Islands. Um, when I was 12, I moved to the States. So a lot of people go to boarding school, uh, especially in my, you know, age group. Uh, the schooling was a lot more limited back then. So a lot of the more intelligent people went to boarding school uh, and left the small island uh, for a while. But my, my parents refused to send me away. So they moved to the States with me because my mother was American anyway. So we had that, that, uh, privilege. And uh, my mother never left. She's still in Miami. So um, anyway, when I moved to Miami, it was for acting and modeling. So that was at 12. I got an agent. I had castings every week. And oh, it wow. was fun. But uh, I had some film training at that age. And uh, that was fun. But uh, it just took a lot out of my mother because she, she couldn't hold down a job. So I just decided not to continue it. It was really hard. It was hard to like get rejected so much and it was distracting from school. But eventually when her job was at risk, it was, it just seemed like an impossible thing to prioritize. So we, we, uh, we decided to, to stop. And then I only revisited it later. Um, more recently, uh, when I went back to Cayman, because it's so, so much easier to tap into multiple things there because the population's so small, you're a big right. fish, small pond. And I was a news anchor as well, so I had a I have had a lot of um, you know connections in that that area in Cayman. So I did about five short films. So you have a lot of experience uh, in front of the camera, which I guess really helps you because we live in a time where if you want to put yourself out there, you have to you have to brand yourself, you have to make videos, you have to do things like this, which you are very good at. And one of the things. Or one of the reasons that I was interest, interested in interviewing you is because I sort of watched your transformation. I'm not sure exactly at what point <laughs> I picked it up. Okay, tell me about but my I, transformation. Well, I, yeah, no, I mean, I'm curious to hear from you, but I've, I've, I've seen you, I mean, your Twitter presence has grown, mm -hmm. and I've seen you get clearer about what you're actually offering and then be consistent with how you're promoting yourself. And I've seen you take a stand in a sense, like you have a, a point of view. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really interesting to watch, uh, how, to watch you in real time, how that's developed. And I'm just, I'm curious, like what was your thought process around that? And, 
how conscious was it? Like, tell me about how you, because you used to be yeah. a, 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 a counselor, like a... Right, yeah. There's a lot of different layers to it, so it's yeah. hard to sometimes know what the, the timeline is. But um, basically, I, yeah, I was um, a formal, you know, mental health professional in practice. So I had two licenses, uh, marriage and family therapy and mental health counseling. And my PhD is in marriage, couples and family therapy my dissertation was on sexual abuse. I was a, I specialized in sexual trauma recovery, mm. and that might be interesting to you because I saw you know you do some of that trauma work as well um, in in the work that you do, and yeah, that was my passion. And I also got into the regulatory side of things. I was appointed to the Government Mental Health Commission for seven years, and so I helped write the mental health law. And, uh, you know, enforce the policies and create all that for the first time for the Cayman Islands. So I know it from the very formal side of things, but it, it was an organic process. I've always been very intuitive with the way that I do things. And now that I'm much more healthy, I would say I'm integrated and balanced, my intuition has been spot on. So there were times when it might have led me in on a detour or whatever, but I've always followed my intuition over maybe, you know, I guess instructions. I don't really listen to what people think I should do. I kind of just go with where I, I might, where my heart is. And, and what did your intuition tell you about Mm, well, how you want to progress here? I I've had a lot of personal you know challenges and and failures. I have a, a, a failed marriage in my history, so I am divorced, and or I I feel like I was divorced is more appropriate now. Um, but so I really wanted to understand what it was that I was getting wrong as a marriage therapist. Um, even being single before I got married. Being a marriage therapist, it was hard to have a PhD in marriage therapy and be single and, and tell people how to have a healthy marriage. And so there was this implicit pressure to be married and no real, I mean, the the, the book smarts, you know, of, of how to resolve marital issues doesn't really teach you how to find a partner it just kind of teaches you the basics of relationship skills like communication, conflict resolution, problem solving, uh, mediation kind of stuff. And and so once I, I was, I guess I pressured myself, let's say, but that was part of the reason um, to get married to the wrong person. And he had a lot of obviously, you know, redeeming qualities. That's why I married him. But he was the wrong person for me. Right. And, and I'm not going to go too far into that, but uh, basically... Once I came out of that, I really was curious as to how did I get to this place? Like, how did I make this mistake? How, how was my judgment so off? And that's when I found a lot of the red pill stuff. And mm. I started to really struggle with my employment. Um, you know, I had worked in the same place for 11 years and I kept sort of butting heads with the values of my employer because she didn't agree with some of the red pill stuff and I was so public and doing my movies and having a divorce and um, you know all of these things so she was very supportive in general but when it came to working the way that I wanted to work I felt like my hands were tied and I wanted to explore my own business and, you know, it was it was difficult because Cayman the, is not set up for online stuff and not ready for a lot of the red pill stuff. But uh, in general, I felt like my 
personal life wasn't located there either. I wasn't going to find my match in Cayman. So I wanted to be nimble and flexible. So that's when I had my eyes set on sort of being a digital nomad or being an online entrepreneur and using my abilities to brand myself and, and be able to support myself. Do you feel the pressure as a mental health professional to project an image like I have it all together because I struggle with that, you know, and I'm a human being and I got all kinds of stuff. So, cause there is the image of like, well, if you're going to teach other people how to do this, like you really have to have your shit together. And there's a lot of pressure in that. Do you, do you feel that? Yeah. I, I think maybe before in the beginning, especially when I first returned to Cayman, it was kind of a, 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 another culture shock of going back into my country of origin, but after being in the States for 18 years. And so that was, you know, I needed to adjust to that. And it is, it can be very difficult and stressful for, for people. And I do encourage um, young counselors and therapists to not uh, disconnect from the, their authenticity, you know, that you can't really compartmentalize work and your personal uh, your personality or personal values that much. So make sure that you don't sort of project an image and kind of circling back to the, to the acting thing. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but being a great therapist really helps, helps me be a much better actress. So it, it's interesting when you can use your empathy to be more authentic overall, mm -hmm. um, sort of what opens up for you. Like you really just are able to, to integrate and, and access, um, you know, the different parts of yourself in a constructive way. Yeah. I remember being in an acting class and I took a break from it and I came back about eight months later and did a scene and the teacher said, that was fantastic. What's, what's going on with you? What happened? And I said, <laughs> a lot of therapy. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. When it's, when it's done well, it can when be really well. transformative. Um, yeah. And I think the, the best therapists are the ones that really inject themselves into the process. You know, they're not sort of sitting behind a curtain of rules and book smarts. Right. Do you have a personal philosophy on therapy and therapeutic techniques and, and your approach to it. I mean, you've spent a lot of yeah. time doing different things, but tell me a little bit about how you, how you see it, therapy and your approach to it. Sure. Well, I've always been eclectic. You know, I integrate a lot of just the general stuff like uh, psychoanalysis, but mostly um, person-centered. I do a lot of narrative therapy. I trained with the people who uh, founded narrative therapy. So that was David Epstein and Michael White. So I trained with both of them in my, my doctoral program. Unfortunately, Michael White passed away after we did some training together and that was really sad, but um, I was happy to have that opportunity with him. And it, it's, I really like it because it's, it's a little bit of the, on the acting side as well, right? Using the narratives and it's, it has these sociological components as well, talking about a dominant narrative in, in the social context and being able to externalize problems is really helpful. I, I find that tool um, really helpful with adults, not just younger people, but um, it helps people to detach from the pathology and, there's this issue with mental health where it's caught itself in this catch 22 situation where it tried to, to, to validate itself by saying, 
uh, it's an illness. You know, you have to recognize mental illness as an illness. But in doing so, they've kind of sort of embedded themselves in, in this lack of self-responsibility and enabling people to be complacent. And so it's interesting uh, that how that evolved. And, and it's really important to see that it's more complex than that. Obviously, uh, there are elements that you don't control, but there are the things that you do. And you have to consider what type of mental illness we're talking about. If it's the severe type of mental illness that has more of a, like a, a biological origin, uh, that's different than functional mental illness, right? Where you're, you're basically a functional human being, but you're experiencing levels of negative symptoms that create distress and dysfunction in your life. And there are things like that you can do just like with lifestyle diseases like diabetes and uh, obesity and, and hypertension and all those sorts of things that can help to alleviate those problems. Yeah, it's interesting because with my clients, the first step is usually empathy. You're trying to create safety with them. You're trying to validate their feelings. But at a certain point, you have to lead them towards self-responsibility. Mm-hmm. And it's always a, a difficult moment for me exactly when that happens, you know, because yeah. you, you, people need to feel, think bad things happen to people, especially as children. And my philosophy is, it's like you need to feel that, you, that needs to be validated, it needs to be acknowledged what actually happened. But at a certain point, like what happened to you now belongs to you. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's yours to deal with and you have mm-hmm. to feel those feelings. And if you stay caught in being a victim, you're always going to be disempowered. And that can be a, a tricky thing, especially in a culture that seems to value or promote victimization. And yeah. I'm just, yeah. How do you, how do you think about that? I like, I actually use even just a piece of that. And it seems to, to help by just saying to people, whether I'm working with them now or when I was working with them as a therapist in the past, I would just say, well, now what? Right. And, and hold it (laughs) for a little while. Yeah. And, and it kind of gets them thinking, okay, um, well, I want to have, you know, a healthy relationship or I want to be able to hold down a job or whatever it is, their goals start to appear. And then we shift to the, 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 the sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent as I normally do. But the other part that I really use in my theoretical sort of um, approach is the solution focused. So narrative therapy, solution focused systems, because marital therapy is very based on systems theory. And uh, it, I came from more of a social constructionist background in my doctoral program, but that is more of the, the um, I guess I would call it the progressive side that I had to evolve from. <laughs> so instead of looking at everything as subjective, basically, I now see the importance of having objectivity and using judgment and being value laden in my approach which is the opposite of what mental health uh, profession teaches you. So that's how I kind of really decided to leave the profession was the importance of having that, that level of um, objectivity and directing people to take accountability and be very clear on their values. And in order to do that, I had to be clear on my values. Tell me about getting drawn into the red pill world. How how did that happen? (laughs) And, and, just tell me a little bit about that journey for you. Yeah, it was definitely bumpy. I had a, <laughs> a lot of, um, yeah, discovery along the way of, of you know, well, understanding what the 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 whole 
idea was. What is the and, idea of it, do you think, <laughs> from your point well, of view? I, I, I really like, you know, the Evo psych part. So that really uh, evolutionary psychology element spoke to my background. And so I looked at it from a scientific uh, perspective and then looking at it from a sociological perspective, because a lot of what I, I studied was sociological in a way, right? Um, coming from a, a qualitative research uh, doctoral study and looking at the social elements of what contributes to sexual trauma, uh, that also interest me and looking at the gaps and what we don't understand about the genders and what's happened ever since the sexual revolution and so you know Rolo Tomasi was obviously the the main guy that wrote all of this stuff down in in the red pill world and I I really you know was drawn to to talking about it and understanding it and there were things that that I didn't a hundred percent agree with but for the most part the framework really fit for me and it made everything sort of fall into place and I didn't quite know how to integrate it <laughs> since that's you know what I do is I'll acquire all this information but I need to integrate it so that it makes sense for my worldview and I really focus on creating healthy relationships and looking at striving for the that ideal right of, of, of an ideal self an ideal uh, lifestyle and an ideal partnership so what I noticed was what we were talking about a lot in the red pill was the worst of people mm. and and I don't I don't view things that way at all I'm much more an optimist but I would call myself a realist idealist I guess <laughs> but that was the issue and so I wanted to kind of sort that out for myself and as I figured out how to piece that together I think that was how my my message became clearer and it, maybe just talk a little bit about the evolutionary psychology aspect of the red pill, because I find it really interesting as well. Um, you know, this, these concepts around hypergamy and, and gender dynamics and it's, what like what was your just say, maybe just talk a little bit about that and what it means to you and how you think about it. Sure. I mean, there's there's debate still, but um, basically looking at uh, gender dynamics and intersexual dynamics, what I talk about in, in my approach is the sexual polarity. And so make, making sure that you have that gen, genuine sexual connection, desire, that infatuation and lust has to be there, but it's only one of the elements. And so I talk about uh, the logic, the desire and the love. And so the the Evo psych is in the desire component. And that was part, a part that was new for me because I've studied sexuality for a very long time when you're specialized in sexual trauma. I mean, I've always felt like you had to, we were missing a real useful discussion on what healthy sexuality is. And because I was so embedded in more of the progressive side of things early on, I, I kind of adopted, although it didn't really fit for me, the whole progressive like well healthy sexuality means um it's okay to to talk about sex it's okay to to express yourself sexually more of the feminist type type of of, of understanding of it and it never really it just it wasn't working um for me personally but professionally too like i didn't quite believe that women should be encouraged to express themselves sexually and so as I understood um, the sexual polarity and how 
natural it is for for men to seek more of a purist type of woman and for women to look for more of the the alpha type of man uh, just at that's how we innately respond to each other then it's like wait a minute so you know culturally we've kind of gone to this political stance of everything goes and whatever androgyny and and subjectivity um but really you know, we don't want to be in a place where people are, are, are abusing each other or dominating each other in a unjust way. But what if we take the positive elements of that mm-hmm. and and help couples function better, but prevent it from getting violent and traumatic? So it's like I, I, I always see the pendulum in everything. Right. And so I just realized that what we had done was just gone from a lot of experience of hurt and pain and trauma to this opposite reaction that was creating a lot more hurt and pain and trauma. And so we needed to find out what, how to translate that knowledge of how we are biologically into a healthy sort of consciousness that we choose to relate to each other in a way that honors that, but also our modern thinking where women are, you know, they're, they're equal and they're free and they can, you know, live a life. But at the same time, they acknowledge that the man should lead in the relationship and, you know, that it's not okay to just, I don't know, carry on like a man and uh, think that you can get away with that without any repercussions or Mm -hmm. consequences. Yeah. I really see how nuanced you are with all this. I can also see how feminists, might take what you're saying and uh, attack you. And has that has that happened to you? Because certainly the oh, red yes. pill community and <laughs> feminism are, it seems to me, are arch enemies. Yes, although they're much more similar <laughs> than probably they are different. Oh, really? In a lot of ways. Say, um, say something about that. That's interesting. Well, you know, it's the the black pill sort of thing. Like, let's mm. not call it the red pill. But there is that reactionary um, position where and I said this the other day, um, if you qualify the entire gender as good or bad, you you, you don't get it. <laughs> and so there are those on either side that do that. And so those are the people that are misguided and they're reactionary and they're emotional and obviously reacting to some kind of trauma, either individual trauma or cultural trauma, you know, sociological levels of trauma. And they don't know it. They're unconscious of it. Not to victimize them further, but just saying like you just need to sort of look at things object objectively and start to see how the dominant narrative has impacted you. Did you feel any uh, trepidation about coming out uh, publicly with this point of view? I mean, you said the you know your former employer had some concerns about your <laughs> red pill attitudes. How, how was that for you? Um, I've I've always been that kind of person that's pushed the envelope and and stood by whatever you know purpose I had. Um, it, I've gone through a lot of of different soapboxes, and uh, I think that it it has been difficult. You know, it does get a lot of negative attention, but it gets a lot of positive attention too. And when I get those one-to-one, you know, personal messages from people who who reach out and say, oh my gosh, what you're saying, it's just, I've never heard anyone say this before and this makes sense to me and I'm so happy that you were able to, to you know, verbalize that and, and it just helps me understand what's going on so much. And, you know, I work with 
not I guess I do still work with with victims, but not in the same way. Uh, but before, I used to run therapy groups for uh, survivors, and I talked about a lot of these things with them. And so I can use that experience and relate to people. It, it's not the at least in 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 my exposure to victims of of sexual trauma, uh, but and, I, and I'm a survivor as well, and I, I did reveal that in my TEDx talk, but. Um, in my experience of speaking with other survivors as well as a therapist, it's not them that actually are the ones that disagree with the red pill or the, you know, it, it's the, the diehard feminists that don't like to be contradicted and don't want to change how they're living their lives. But um, so the, the assumption that it's misogynistic and it's about, you know, disempowering women and, and that's not necessarily true. Obviously, there are people who are bad on either side and mm -hmm. do believe in those things that I think are harmful, but you can't just sort of paint it all with the same brush. What do you think is going on with feminism right now? Like what, what's your, as a, mm -hmm. as a, somebody who's interested in psychology and psychotherapy and analyze what, what, what's going on with feminism? Because it seems to me there's obviously we needed feminism and, but maybe the pendulum has swung too far because it seems there's a lot of, anger and vitriol and mm -hmm. not a lot of room for conversation. It's sort of, you have to see it my way or that's it. And I know that mm -hmm. that is changing and softening. Nevertheless, what, what's your take on the current state of feminism? I was thinking about that the other day uh, because I, I, I've heard or seen a few posts about what happened to feminism with this whole, you know, pandemic? Where are they now? Uh, and, and, and it's true, like with any kind of crisis, your attention does get redirected. So I don't, I don't think people should be super hopeful that it's, it's, it's dead. I think if it's dormant right now, it, we understand why. And a lot of people are in shock still. So they're trying to figure out how to live their lives given current circumstances with coronavirus. And so, you know, don't, don't count it out yet. But um, I think this can be an opportunity, obviously. There's a lot of silver linings to this. Um, even in, in my country of origin, in the Cayman Islands, um, I've been involved in some conversations lately. They, they've been posting on social media. And people are starting to shift in a lot of ways. Like the whole country has changed because it's such a small country, right? It was one of the the first countries to close its borders. And so we're talking about three tiny islands that cover a hundred square miles. And so, you know, <laughs> closing your borders requires you to be self-sufficient and it's not. So people are scared. They don't know, you know, how to ration things. They don't know how they're going to get access to things. And they have a hard lockdown. Um, so, you know, you can't leave your house at all. And, and everything's by alphabetical order. Like you go to the grocery store, if your name's between A and E and F to whatever. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're talking about the economics uh, of the, the economic impact there. And you talk about that in America, but it's quicker in Cayman because it's so small. So they're actually looking at reforming a lot of things. And, and I've spoken up and said, it's about time because as a Caymanian and as someone with a PhD, the fact that I was paycheck to paycheck when I lived there and I can take the same money and survive much better here, that should be telling that mm -hmm. there needs to be some changes. Um, I mean, even the electricity bill there was like $600 a month in, in Cayman Islands dollars, which is worth more than the United States dollar. So there are things that need to change across the board that are 
cultural, sociological, political, economic, you know, whatever. And this is something that's going to impact it. So these women who are now staying home and getting connected to their domestic skills and their their relationships are their main focus and they're exercising and they're calling their loved ones. I think they're going to reconnect with that sense of femininity, that sense of groundedness. And there, there's going to be obviously the same sort of um, impulse to, to escape it when the doors open and, and you get your freedoms back. But at the same time, I'm hoping that they'll, they'll remember uh, the pleasant, and the, the goodness that came as they reprioritized their life and that it's not so bad to bake bread. You know, that's the big thing right now. All the women are baking bread and I love it. I, I laugh because I said, baking bread is like the equivalent of man making fire. <laughs> you know, we it's so easy to just pick up a loaf of bread, just like it's easy to, you know, get a lighter or matches or whatever. But when you actually take the time to do these things, uh, you know, you don't have to be obligated to do it, but you shouldn't be you shouldn't reject doing it and you shouldn't feel like it's an it's an insult if somebody asks you to bake bread like get over yourself so like this is something that's just part of our evolution yeah i mean i it does something to me when a woman cooks food <laughs> and brings it to me something deeply visceral it, it 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 evokes these feelings of wanting to provide and protect and it's very it's a very very powerful thing and i i remember being in a relationship with a woman who loved to cook. She loved, like, this was her whole thing. She walked, watched cooking shows and had cooking magazines. And we were, it was early on in our dating. And she said, oh, I want to cook you something. And then she cooked it and then she brought it over. And she had all this anxiety about like, oh, I'm cooking for you. I don't know if this is okay. And it just felt <laughs> so sad to me that something that she loved and enjoyed had been tainted by this idea that, uh, a woman cooking for a man was somehow subservient. And I see that a lot out there. Like it's almost like shame about this basic instinct to want to have a man uh, provide and protect for you. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very sad to see that. And and what, like, what are you, what are you seeing out in the culture? Cause you're, you're right in the heart of it. I mean, you're tweeting out things that would be uh, very, uh, you know, upsetting potentially to certain women feminists. And I, I'm assuming you get backlash on Twitter and other places. Is that true? I I, I get it on Facebook um, more now because I've blocked probably 3,000 people on, wow, on Twitter. Wow, really? Yeah. I, I just, I don't, I don't have the time to, Good for to, you. to deal with it. So... In the beginning, but I still had my licenses when I was working online, um, and a lot of people threatened to. I think people actually did contact the the board, the Florida Board of of Health, to complain and take my license away, and uh, and that freaked me out. Like I don't, I don't. I'm I'm kind of a perfectionist. Like I like that I have an upstanding reputation, and you know I don't want people to have, like sully my name or whatever so that was started me thinking like should I give them up my licenses or shouldn't I and some people still today when they're like pissed off at me they'll be like well I heard she had her licenses pulled because of this and that and like no 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 but whatever I'll just leave it there uh I don't engage in that but no I decided to let them expire and at first like there's a process like you can retire officially or you can let them expire 
or you can put them on hold. And so at first I paid to put them on hold and then I contacted them and clarified and they said, no, if you don't feel like you're going to practice anymore, you can just get them, like leave them to expire and that's it. Then you're not a therapist anymore. And I was like, okay, I'll just do that then. So it was very anticlimactic, but um, I'm just very responsible about telling people I'm not a therapist anymore, I'm retired and, and I do like independent consulting on, you know, it, it could be general stuff, not just relationship stuff, but that's kind of how I've branded it. And now I think people are, are getting used to a lot of these ideas and I'm not, some people are very slanted with the way that they, they say things. And I have been a little bit, mm, I don't know, pointed in the past, but I think as my branding has become more clear with my messaging uh, and I've had a lot more success with with new clients that that I've worked with since I've I've left the practice I think it's clear that it's working <laughs> and so it's hard to argue with it yeah did you brand yourself in this way because that was what you were most interested in and or because you saw that there was a need in the culture I mean, I, I see there's a need in the culture for people need help with relationships. Oh, yes. Yeah. And like I said, I needed that. Like, uh, right. in, I needed to know what what it was that I was looking for. And so I'm, I'm writing a book currently and it's going to be on the ideal relationship. That's kind of my thing. And how to prepare for and attract your ideal partner. And the reason why I say prepare for, this is the most important piece that most people don't highlight. And basically it's about creating that ideal self. And pe there are some people that talk about, you know, being the best man that you can be or being a better version of yourself. But clarifying that in order to deserve this ideal partner, you have to at least be on path to be your best self. And this idea that there's some sort of laundry list or an objective kind of image of someone who's this ideal is so false. That's why I hate when people say, you know, they sort of fantasize about this ideal man or whatever, or they even talk about a type, even that's sort of the same thing and, and has the same problems with it. But the ideal partner is the ideal complement to your ideal self. And so in order to, to refocus on developing yourself, you're in essence really learning how to prepare for that, that partner down the road. And I tell women to, to act like he's there, you know, like not in a sort of delusional sense, but if you carry yourself like that woman, because a lot of them, they don't know how to how to be single and they have a hard time and they, they feel lonely um, and they, they don't know how to, how to attract that that man. Uh, and so they just kind of waste the time that they're single doing other things. And it's like, no, 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 no. Just do what you would do. If you need to get better at cooking, if you need to get better at your finances, if you need to get fit, if you, whatever it is, don't waste time waiting until you meet the guy that you want to impress. Do that now. And so women have a hard time with, with self-development. They kind of sometimes feel it's so critical and they, they react defensively or they just postpone it. They deprioritize it. So my emphasis with women has really been on that. Yeah, it's interesting. I can, I can see the criticism, the distorted criticism being, I'm going to make myself into this fit woman who looks sexy, wears makeup, who's good domestically, knows how to cook in order that I can get a man. But that's not really what you're saying. What you're saying is be a great version of yourself. And if you do that, you're going to attract a great man. 
Yes. And, and, and the other thing is improving your weaknesses. So it, it varies for different people, right? Like if we're looking at the women that I'm talking to mostly, although I have a, a new flurry of really young, lovely women, which I'm excited about, like getting them early. But a lot of times it's an older woman who's been career focused for decades. She's type A, she's a millionaire, and she's been through a couple divorces or has adult children, but she's she's never had a successful relationship. Or maybe she's never had a successful relationship and been married to her career the whole time. So her strength is is already all these other skills right uh, so she doesn't need to develop those but she needs to develop the softer side of her right so that's that's what people aren't understanding when i emphasize those th- those things about women it's because those are their weaknesses that's how they develop is focusing on your weaknesses and leveraging your strengths so if your if your strength is the domestic side then i would say why don't you work on you know being a little bit more um I don't know, mentally strong or being more practically minded, getting some of those um, skill sets that help you be more self-sufficient so that you're not so dependent and fragile. Do you see yourself as controversial? Um, probably. Yeah. I mean, I could I can admit that. And how does that feel to be somebody who's you, you've, you've come out in the culture, you've got 30,000 Twitter followers and that you've had to block 3000. So that tells you (laughs) you, you're getting some stuff coming at you. How does that feel to be a person in the culture who's controversial and attracting uh, attention and a reaction, not always a good reaction? I, I mean, I really focus on, on the good that comes out of it, not just to be controversial, but to be able to stand for something and be happy, you know, and, and I don't mean happy in like a frivolous sense. I mean, at peace, right? That to me, that's what happiness is, is being, having a simple life where, you know, you've worked hard and you've earned all the rewards that you have, but you're focused and content and you have peace of mind. And that's what I strive for. And that's what I want for other people. And, and I've always kind of been, you know, a person of service and tried to help people achieve that for themselves and it's a skill set of mine I just have a natural gift of helping people so I'm using it and that makes that makes me feel you know like I'm living in my purpose do the attacks ever get to you yes and and it's difficult because um yeah, it took a lot of, of growth. I think that was sort of, I used to be very anxious about some of these things and I was able to to let go of that and redirect uh, my concerns to other things and not give too much credence to them. Uh, and having someone, you know, I, I'm, I'm with someone now, I've been in a relationship for a while and, and it's definitely easier when you're in a healthy relationship, but also just to have someone um, to to help support you through any of those stressors or yeah, it's just not as important anymore because you're focusing on somebody else and yeah, just being happy and content with that. I mean, it, it's like if I were to have kids, like having kids, it, it, it's a distraction. <laughs> you're not going to be so worried about those things because you're prioritizing other things that are more important. But I, I, I've never really... Um, it's never been my intention to be so big, you know, like some of these people that that's, that's all it is, is controversy and, and things coming at you. Like I wouldn't, my, my ambitions don't go that far. 
Yeah, I don't I don't see you trying to intentionally provoke for attention. Everything that I've seen you write and say feels authentic to how you feel. Um nevertheless, it's it's it takes a lot of courage. And I, that's what I've seen and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because I'm interested in people who are standing up and speaking their truth and it provokes a reaction in the cultural narrative and they can face a lot of backlash and maybe yeah. calls for cancellation and you know and I know you, you you roll with some 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 of the bad boys of Twitter <laughs> you know and yeah. uh, do you see yourself as as somebody who has courage yeah uh, my the TEDx talk experience was was huge for me um, I remember I actually accepted or, or I don't think I sought it out, but somehow I won like a free coaching call. And, and I remember using that hour to talk about my fears about this TEDx talk because it was the same time as my, my defense of my dissertation after going that whole process is in a whole nother thing. But um, it, it got, I had to go through two extensions and it was like my last chance to, to finish. And it cost me like an extra $40,000 to prolong the process. So that, that took a lot of courage to get through the, the doctorate. But when I was facing the, the TEDx talk at the same time, it just doubled it. And I was afraid I was just going to blank on the stage. And so we talked about my fear of of embarrassment in front of the whole world. It kind of was like a the worst nightmare scenario happening in my mind. And it's it was literal at the time because when they broadcast TEDx Live, like it's literally like hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people watching at one time. And uh and I did. It actually happened. Like I literally <laughs> blanked on stage and I lost it. I lost my train of thought completely. I was so exhausted. I had been up. I traveled, flew to Miami, defended my dissertation, flew back to Cayman. And two days later, I gave my TEDx talk and I was re rewriting it up till that night. And I lost two minutes of my talk, but went in this coaching call prior to this happening, I had found an affirmation in this coaching call. It was, I accept my imperfections. I accept my imperfections. So in the moment on stage live at TEDx in Cayman Islands and I blanked, someone brought me my lines from off stage and I walked over with the mic still on. I said to myself out loud, I accept my imperfections. I accept my imperfections. And then the people in the crowd started applauding and tweeting, I accept my imperfections. And then I came back on and I caught up with myself and, and figured out how to finish, but I did lose two minutes, but post-production tied it up and it looks pretty good, but there's still something missing and that's what it is. Um, but it turned into a double thing because I disclosed to the world that I was a survivor. So that was a big step and that's probably what led to me blanking, but, um, then recovering so well. Wow. What a, what a story, what a, the vulnerability that's there. And in, in mm -hmm. not just, I mean, revealing yourself, as you said, uh, your story mm -hmm. about being a sexual abuse survivor, but then having your worst fear come true and having yeah. it be seen. It's kind of beautiful in a way. 
Yeah, that was the more meaningful piece for me. I didn't really, I didn't actually get into my personal story of, you know, uh-huh. being a survivor. I just mentioned it. Oh, uh, I see. And uh, even that, like, it's my, my, you know, community is so small. Um, so it was a big deal. But um, I, I, as a, a, a professional, I never really wanted to make the, the spotlight be on me. I wanted it to be on my clients. So maybe like we should talk about dating and relationships a little bit. I mean, I'm a single guy. I'm 50 and I'm single. And I don't think I've ever really had a successful relationship. Hmm. I mean, I've had many relationships, but none that have lasted more than a couple of years. And I've gone down the rabbit hole trying to explore what that is and what it's about. But what what would your advice be for a 50-year-old single man? What what how should I approach thinking about relationship at this point in my life, do you think? Well, I I usually start with a self-assessment, you know, really mm-hmm. looking at what your strengths and weaknesses are honestly. And seeing it from a perspective of being that sort of idea of what an ideal man might be, what that partner requires, uh, or is what is required of the partner, right? Like if uh, you imagine that relationship, what weaknesses do you need to work on to be that man? And what strengths do you need to emphasize or leverage in order to uh, be that man as well? Um, because a lot of times we get stuck, you know, in, in, in what is in the moment, which it's good to, it's good to be present, but at the same time, you know, that's not all that there is. Like you can, uh, create, uh, a new possibility if you put in the effort, you just need to know what that is and you need to work for it. So what do you think is holding you back? Like, what are the, the weaknesses that continue to, to surface and prevent you from connecting with someone healthy in a healthy way? Well, I think there's a lot of levels to it. I mean, I think I think I have an image that if I get into a relationship, this is probably due to my background and my relationship with my mother, but that I have an image that once I'm in a relationship, I lose my autonomy and that I don't have freedom. And so there's some part of me that doesn't want to take on the responsibility of the mm-hmm. relationship because I feel like I'm going to be tied down and somehow my yeah my personal autonomy is going to it'll be thwarted and it'll all be about her because i think that's how it was for me growing up and it's 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 Mm -hmm. a kind of a programming that's been really hard for me to undo but i can also see the it's like it comes at a cost like i'm i'm alone i'm not unhappy but Mm -hmm. i can feel where my life would be much more fulfilling in partnership. So I, I guess fundamentally there's some part of me that's terrified of the mm-hmm. intimacy. Well, there's truth to that, to that, right? Like there is an element of, of individuality that you have to give up. Absolutely. You have to see yourself as a team and a unit mm. in order to be f- successful. Uh, but I think that the, the stumbling block that you're coming upon is who you think you would be with right? Like a woman you need is someone who's extremely supportive of you and believes in your mission so that she wouldn't be constricting you from that, those freedoms, right? Like, I mean, unless you're, you're talking about sexually, um, but to, to do the work that you do and to, to travel or, um, to be able to make decisions based on what you think is best for yourself, 
all those things should be able to happen with a woman who is supportive and playing on the same team with you. You know what I think happened to me is that I grew up, I was very uh, sympathetic to feminism. I went to the University of Toronto, started in 1988, and feminism was just on fire. And I bought in. And I think there was a part of me that desired a more traditional relationship. And I don't mean traditional in the sense of having women at home cooking meals and having babies all the time, but more in terms of the polarity that Mm I sort of, I wanted to be the man and she would be the woman. I think I felt shame about that. There was actually something Mm -hmm. wrong. And it wasn't until I dated this woman who was from Texas where she was like, listen, you need to be the man. You need to open the car door for me. And I had grown up thinking that was sexist. Like it was that the women didn't want that. I mean, still to this day, that's out there. So there's some way, I think, I, I took all of that in and it distorted my natural impulse. And so I became drawn to, uh, I, I didn't allow myself to be attracted to or get into relationship with a woman who might actually be willing to uh, support me and and support my freedom and not, not sexual freedom, but just my, you know, just my autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, there's a lot of that going on. I think on both sides, like I was saying earlier, I think there's women who feel shame about their innate feminine instinct. And I think there's mm-hmm. men who feel ashamed about their innate masculine oh, yes. instinct. And so what's happened is there's no polarity in the relationship. There's no, and so if there's no polarity, there's no real fucking, like, you know, like there's no <laughs> life, like, you know. And so I I feel what's happening and I see this all, I see this in the work that you're doing. I see this in the work of uh, David Data. who has been talking about Mm -hmm. this for a long time. Now there's a guy here in LA, John Wineland, who's doing this, where Mm -hmm. it's like, we we have to come back to this sexual polarity and that there's something beautiful and uh, almost sacred in the dynamic between the masculine and feminine. And actually Mm -hmm. when you go all the way into that, there's an equality almost a spiritual equality oh, yes. that transcends all of these stories that we have about equal pay and our women running mm-hmm. corporations, which is, you know, there's, there's things to be discussed there. Uh, and certainly there's issues there. Sexism is real, but there's another level it feels to me in, in mm-hmm. the, in the, just in kind of the energy that we need to come back to because that's where, that's where the action is. Yeah. It's funny how, you know, trendy and popular yoga is, but the actual tenants, you know, yin and yang and all that sort of stuff is, right. is so relevant to this conversation. And yet they detach from, from it completely and, and don't see how you can be equally important and yet totally different. And that concept just goes over their head. And, and I've had that argument several times, actually, even just recently. So it's true. It's, it's, it's a hard nuance to articulate, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And it's important to see, um, to see it for what it is and how it works and and its effectiveness. But, you know, I have to talk women down all the time. Women, you know, we are very powerful creatures, Mm -hmm. uh, a good, good on the good side, like on the positive side and on the negative side. Um, and there's nothing wrong with with embracing that when it's useful. But the problem is we get in our own way, and this is true for men too, in in their um, 
on their side of things. But for women, we get very assertive and we know what we want and we go after it. And so I have to really talk women down and and explain to them, you're not leaving any room for the man to be the man when you're taking control and you, you know, you think it's good because you're being clear and you're being, you're being directive, but you're not being receptive and you're not, you're just not, the best way to say it is you're not leaving any room or space for him to pursue you and to, for him to step into his masculinity and lead you. Um, and that's really important for sexual polarity. And so getting women to sort of sit on their, their hands and their feet and not respond sometimes, it's not about, you know, texting three days later, nothing like that, but just the actual behavioral redirection of saying, you can be an assertive woman who knows what she wants, but not in a masculine way. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, it feels like the unconscious, uh, expression of that is 50 shades of gray the fact that that book which is about a woman who desires to be dominated and tied up it's like the most extreme uh version uh, expression of of what it is you're talking about and it it's almost like that came out of this is my thinking it came out of the the denial and the repression of the natural instinct because women and I assume you feel this way. You you know, you got to achieve, you got to have a career, just like mm-hmm. men. It's like you got to be successful. And that's a kind of a masculine quality. And we all have masculine and feminine inside us. And so mm-hmm. how do women who are embracing their masculine out in the world then come back to their man and turn off that masculine part of them, be in their femininity, be receptive and surrender in a sense uh, that's a tricky thing, I think, for women to do. And I think it's, I see in, in, in the women that I work with, it's very confusing. And as I said, there's, there can be shame mm-hmm. around it. And similarly for the men, especially you have a generation of men raised without fathers, not all men, but a lot of men, myself included, there's no role model. And so there's this idea that I'm supposed to stand up and lead feels wrong it's like that's not the message we're getting from the culture so it just feels like there's a whole generation or two of people who are very confused about gender relationship and i think it's it it feels wrong in in a sense right it feels like it's not allowed Mm -hmm. but it actually feels right when you when you do act that way yes for sure. So, so that's what I focus on when I work with people is I give them permission, you know, and, yeah. and even if it's just me, I mean, they, they obviously, they, 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 they want to listen to what I have to say if they're paying me, but, um, that corrective parenting kind of thing, if we want to talk about it from a therapeutic mm-hmm. standpoint, um, they need that. And to say, you know, you need to be the man that your father never taught you to be. And I can help you that way, but you need a male role model, but ultimately you need to decide who that man is and you need to become that man uh, without having that example from your father. And mostly for women, um, well, if you wanted to comment on that, sorry, I don't want to cut you off. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> for women, it's 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 really just, um, I, I worked with someone briefly, but even just having one conversation, it can be so powerful when you give them that permission. They were struggling with, you know, being a successful woman, running a business and, and you know, there's always problems, but in essence, it's like this, 
implicit uh, cultural pressure that I need to strive. I need to just keep going and, and achieve more and more and more. And when you say, but you don't, you don't have to achieve more. When is it enough? And what's important to you? What, when are you happy? When are you at peace? When do you feel like it's enough? And connecting to that femininity through, it can be, seem silly to an outside person, but really just connecting to your, to your body, to, um, children, to animals, to the simple things like domestic things. Um, but really being able to, to say that that's okay. And it doesn't have to be explicitly sexual, like it's just Mm -hmm. sensual and that's important. So getting back to, um, fitness and exercise can work, especially if it's something more feminine, you know, if it's dance or, um, yeah, the various tools that you can use. Uh, but, but being able to say, you know, you don't have to be a millionaire. You don't have to compete with the boys in the ring. Uh, you're, you're good enough and you've proven yourself, but really now is the time to redirect your focus because, you know, if you're 30, then you've got other priorities to think about. It's interesting. I, I think culturally we are slanted towards the masculine, the doing part. That's, that's American culture. We got to do, we got to achieve, we got to figure things out and the feminine and, and separate from women, because we all have masculine and feminine, this, this idea of being and of surrender and of, and the instinct and intuition and nature like that's that's all been lost and so we i feel like we see it played out this this distortion we see it played out in on the individual level but Mm -hmm. also on the cultural level so i think about it like you know you hear the future is female i'm like well maybe what if the future is feminine like we need more femininity more less doing more being and so there's some, that's how I try to think about it, you know, like that. And, and also inside me, because that battle rages inside me. What is the balance for me between wanting to achieve and also just allowing mm-hmm. myself to, to be, to surrender? Because oftentimes, and this is the, the magic of the feminine to me, the feminine inside me and women. It's like when you surrender, when you give over. and stop trying to achieve something or go after something, it's something it, all, it all comes to you. Mm-hmm. Like magic, you know, it all just kind of flows to you if you just open your arms from this receptive mode. And that's one of the things that I find in my work is teaching people, both men and women, how to be receptive. Like it's so not important. an easy thing to do to just mm-hmm. allow my, because there is a, a, a relaxing and a surrender uh, to it. And culturally, that's not how we've been trained. So I, I, I don't know, I'm just saying all this stuff because it's, it exists on so many levels and I think it's so deeply, these things are so deeply embedded in our psyche and it's not an easy thing to undo. Again, I sort of use that with people by saying to, you need to, to integrate as a person first, as an individual, before you can really seek anything um, outside, like externally looking for happiness in a relationship or, or figuring out the, the, you know, the meaning of your life. Uh, so balancing your energy inside your masculine, your feminine, and making sure that you're healthy is really uh, uh, the best way to do it. And once you start, um, focusing on 
improving the side that's weaker, then you get that balance, mm-hmm. you feel more integrated, and then someone healthy is attracted to you. And that's a very simplistic way, or this this is a very simplistic way of, of describing it, but there's this whole battle between not just masculine and feminine, but the alpha, beta, and all that sort of stuff. And so what I say is the world would not make sense if it was all one or the other, whether it's all masculine or all feminine or all alpha and all beta. So the point is to just be able to, um, you know, well, in the sexual polarity sense, it's the man I believe should be the alpha of the relationship at a minimum, right? The woman can have alpha qualities because that's really just like the masculine side of her, but she shouldn't and be in a power struggle with her partner to try to, you know, take that positioning. And so you don't have to be like an alpha among all men. It just, just an alpha with your woman is right, very important. Right, right, I want to read this. I went through some of your tweets. I, I, and I, I came across this one, which I thought was good and probably very provocative to a lot of people. And uh, if he's covering all the household bills and you depend on him to protect and shield you if in danger... The least you can do is cook and clean and have sex, even when it's inconvenient. That triggered a lot of people. Mm. Danger doesn't schedule itself into your agenda, and it's actually life-threatening. Now, that is a bold tweet. And just say a little bit about what you, how you think about that. Well, I'm curious what your reaction was. Like, what was your, just your initial understanding of it? it? It's hot to me. It feels sexy. It's like turns me on, hmm, honestly. Okay. You know, there's well, something nice. about like, like primal, as we talked about. It's like, yeah, if I'm going to be out chopping the wood and, you know, killing buffalo and bringing the meat home, <laughs> um, and I'm taking on that responsibility and, and essentially living my life, that's my duty to, to, to my family and to you. It's, I, I want that reciprocated. But and not only reciprocated just because that's what I want, but I want you to want that too. Like I want your, mm-hmm. uh, you to feel your own personal satisfaction through satisfying me because that's where my satisfaction comes from through yeah. through satisfying you. And that union is perfection. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. So that's how I took that. Mm-hmm. Women can tend to be very entitled. Uh, oh, right. They they can expect everything from the man, all the sacrifice, all the prioritization, all the effort, and then not do anything in return. And to, to them, to them, that can seem appropriate uh, because that's what they were told that they should be pedestalized, basically, right? Like that, you know, a man should dote on you and take care of you and, and make you feel like you're the most important person in the world. And yes, you know, you're going to be the priority above all other women for him, but he's shouldn't be worshiping you. And you're not the queen in that sense. It's a king and queen, right? But you're not like some, um, I don't know, like, ethereal creature (laughs) that that he gets to pamper you have responsibilities and oh my gosh, like the amount of times I've brought up responsibility 
in a professional setting, not even talking to victims, but just talking to professionals. I was talking about this yesterday. Um, I was at a domestic violence conference and they put us in this position where we stood up and did this exercise and they talked about clothes and being, you know, to blame. And anyway, the whole point was I said, well, of course the victim is not to blame for what happened, but you do want to teach her self-protection and and not to, you know, do certain things that are going to put her at more risk because we all have responsibility for that, just like we lock our doors at night. <laughs> um, and people get so offended by this term responsibility. And so, you know, women too, they don't see themselves as having responsibility in relationships uh, to the relationship, to the other person. Mm. And men have a more innate understanding of duty and honor. Um, but this is the thing. Like, I see healthy women as some of the most selfless, humble, self-sacrificing people in the world. But that's, you know, an, become an exception. Mm-hmm. It's no longer the norm that you see that. Most women um, that I've talked to feel much more entitled to things without earning them. And I had a, another video where I talked about how to earn his exclusivity. And I got a lot of flack for that. And that was interesting just to see how people don't understand that it's not just handed to you. Like, just because you like them or you're attractive doesn't mean that they should be exclusive with you. You, you need to sh- prove yourself, right? That you're loyal, you have integrity, um, you know, you're going to be a good mother or whatever, like different things that men are looking for that y- you need to actually embody. Like you don't just get everything you want because you like the guy. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you're saying. And I understand if, you know, women have been subjugated for a lot of years. And there's probably a lot of women who felt like that it was completely their duty to care for their man. And they have to be had to be completely selfless and take care of them and deny themselves and take care of their kids. And so when feminism came on and sexual revolution, they're like, fuck all that. We don't need men. We're free. Mm -hmm. And as we've talked about the pendulum swung very far and and maybe it needed to but it definitely feels like it it needs to come back to balance because i i agree with you i see that out there all the time uh Mm -hmm. i always feel this and there are there are plenty of men who are entitled but this idea constantly talking about the entitlement of men when feminism feminists talk about that i always feel it's a projection Mm -hmm. it's like you're the entitled you want you want everything like this idea Mm -hmm. like uh, i forget the essay came out about five years ago um uh, why women can't have it all as though men have it all. It was very strange right. to me. This, this, I, and, and it's also, there's a, it feels like there's a distortion in how they see men. Like I don't feel seen as a man by feminists, like the way that they're describing men or characterizing them. I'm like, that's not <laughs> what it's like in here. I can tell <laughs> you that's not how it is for me. That's not my experience. That's not what's going right. on inside my head. And that's, I think for me, been part of the, frustration and and even pain of it because I you know I I I was in Hollywood for 25 years and before that I was at a very uh, progressive Canadian university so I've been immersed in the culture of progressivism and feminism and that's essentially been my tribe so um, I've had this journey of moving away from that 
and questioning some of those values. And it's not been easy because it's brought me into deep conflict with some people who've been very close to me and mm-hmm. it's I've had some doubts but now and that's why it's good to talk to somebody like you and especially women mm-hmm. who are uh, l- taking some of the concepts of the red pill or who are looking at feminism and with a critical eye and but what I feel from you is this is what real empowerment is mm-hmm. I mean this is because it's authenticity you know there's right. no agenda really like you're trying to teach women to be and men to be happy and content and fulfilled and understand that we all have a responsibility to ourselves to our relationship to life and we have to carry the burden of that responsibility we have to take it on and in fact it's when we take that on that we're going to be most fulfilled Mm -hmm. that's where fulfillment comes from taking on responsibility and taking on the duty and then fulfilling that and i think it's a it's a beautiful value so I'll thank you for championing it out there like you you really are a, a i'm just so impressed by your willingness to put yourself out there and to take the heat it does take a lot of courage and uh and i think your message is i think it gives relief probably to a lot of I'm sure to a lot of women, as you said, you get all these messages, but also to men. It's like I really mm-hmm. feel seen and uh, understood and valued by your uh, perspective. Thank you. And I'm happy to hear that. And I'm hoping that for you, what you just described sounded like so spot on that you can internalize that for yourself too, you know, like realizing that that, that, you know, type of woman or unideal lady is out there for you who will provide that without restricting you in the way that you fear. Yeah, I I, I do believe that. Uh, I'm star- I don't think I did unconsciously. I don't think I believed it for a long time. I, I wouldn't allow myself to believe it. And probably I was stuck in resentment from what happened to me as a, as a kid, stuff with my mother and I mean, my mother's awesome, but um, but I think I had a lot of resentment, and uh, and you know, like all people, sometimes we can we want to hold on to our negativity. This and this is really my own place where I stayed attached to being a victim, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I can feel how disempowering that was. So it's probably some of that that was going on, and it's it's, uh, but I'm here now. And part of the the hardest part, though. I, I want Mm -hmm. to make sure that I leave you with something extra too, uh, is the vetting part, right? Like you have to actually say no to people and not pursue unhealthy relationships in the meantime, because there's a huge opportunity cost, but you still stay entangled in the bad patterns. And so there's a hard choice when you're in the in-between stage where it's like, well, do I, you know, just sort of stay celibate? And a lot of people do because they recognize that it's it's hard to determine when you are talking to someone who's not a healthy person. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to be celibate. Like I do talk to men who have some level of, of dating, like not casual relationships. I call it ethical non-monogamy. But 
you have to allow yourself to prioritize getting to know people first and being able to reject the bad partners, the bad matches for you. And that can be the, the hardest part of all of it, right? But along the way, you will start to see the green flags and you will start to see yeah. what is healthy for you. Um, but it is a process. Yeah, it's so important. This is another issue, and you talk about this a lot, not jumping into bed with people right away. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what I did. I mean, we, you know, first date sometimes, second, by, definitely by the third date, we're sleeping together. And immediately there's an attachment that happens, and you're kind of thrust into this relationship because of this, you know, the sexuality way before you know the person and way before you're ready. And I think that's an mm -hmm. epidemic out in the culture. I remember hearing Jordan Peterson talking about it. He's like, at least like four dates, just wait four dates, which seems <laughs> completely reasonable. But that's that's the place he bargained to, right? you know, for college kids. And I understand you're young and all that. But there is something about the promiscuity. And it's easy for me to say now that I'm 50 and uh, it's easy to look back, but I can see how... Uh, damaging promiscuity can be mm -hmm. for both men and women. I don't think it's oh, good yeah. for men to be sleeping no. around all the time. I agree. Um, I think there's, there's just more leeway, right? Like it, yeah. it affects women more and men have an opportunity when they're younger uh, to gain some sexual confidence, but it should be temporary and you don't have to do it, but there's just more leeway there. No, it's good. It's good to see you. You you talking about that. There's a there's yeah. It's true. I mean, I don't know if traditional values is exactly how you describe uh, your philosophy, but that's how, in some way, how it feels. And I, and I feel that that's mm -hmm. what wants to make a comeback. Like, what's wrong with traditional values? <laughs> Nothing. And 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 I consider myself the best of both worlds in a lot of yeah. in a lot of ways. Like I'm in the middle. And so I'm bringing this voice to that middle ground. And if you want to go back to the pendulum, that's the goal is to find right. that well-balanced, integrated perspective that takes a, a 360 comprehensive view and pulls out what is effective from things. Uh, the, I mean, if you think about it, like my whole eclectic integrated approach to therapy, like it all comes together. And that's my intention is to make things the most effective ideal version as as I can like contribute to and I don't consider myself trad con or you know feminist but I'm somewhere in the middle and it's taken my personal journey to get there to help me articulate that to other people so I am bringing all of these issues and and, and aspects in to the work that I do and, and it, I'm just happy to be able to do it uh, and now having more women working with more women because I have predominantly been working with men. I mean, it's still like 75, 25. Really? Mm -hmm. 75% yeah. of your clients are men who are looking to have relationships with women. That's yeah. really interesting. I know. And, and the thing is talking about the branding process, uh -huh. I started, I don't know if you know, my brand started off Dr. Babe. No, I didn't know that. So <laughs> I had a TV show. Yeah. I had a TV show. <laughs> And in, came, in the Cayman Islands, and uh, it played on TV, but it also, you know, we posted it online. But Dr. Babe was part of one of the layers of me getting here. And I also thought it was like a really smart marketing brand or whatever. And it worked. It, it was. Yeah, it's great. And, but the concept was the polarity <laughs> of masculine and feminine. That was the whole concept. And so I did a photo shoot where I did some like 
you know, very red pinup kind of looking things, very sexy. And then I literally wore like a tie, trousers. I had a cigar in my mouth to show the masculine. Like that was the actual concept. And some of my, my trolls laughed at me and said, look at this woman talking about blah, blah, blah. She, and I'm like, you guys are totally missing the point. You're not getting art. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so the Dr. Babe came about that way. And like my, you know, serious achieving PhD, but then also I'm a sexy woman. It was supposed to be that contrast, but I dropped that and just started doing, you know, myself basically. But I think, uh, the evolution of, of getting to this point has really been able to, to say, you know, you don't need to, to, to look at those sort of disparities and say, well, I mean, it's either, or it's somewhere in the middle that really paints the most uh, appropriate, clear, healthy picture. And we all have to integrate those two elements. It makes sense to me that men want to come to you because on, on some unconscious level, they could see you as the good mom who, <laughs> because you have values and you're clear and you're firm, but there's, you're not shaming and you're not rigid. And so I can see for a man, like, it doesn't matter what he brings you. I mean, I can feel, I can feel this in me, like you're going to be, you're going to receive it and be open to it. And, and you're not going to, uh, shame or tell me that I'm wrong, but you're just going to redirect for the purposes of my own fulfillment and happiness and just reflect back the places where I may be distorted. So I can see that I can see why men would be drawn to you. I hope, however, that more women are drawn to you because it feels to me that you would, you're a great role model for Thank women. You. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm getting more. So I am very encouraged. And literally, the, all over the world, I have this uh, online group now, one for men and one for women. And I've gotten like a 21-year-old, 22, 23, 24-year-old women who are much more traditional. But they're yeah. you know, in South Africa. They're in Colombia. They're in the States. They're all over the world. And they're starting to reach out and ask for guidance uh, so we can catch them early and help guide them on, you know, a path that's appropriate to them because society tells them they're weird and there's something wrong if they yeah. don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or some successful businesswoman. Uh, and so to tell them it's okay, but recognizing that it doesn't mean you have to be some caricature of, you know, whatever that trad con right. image is that you can still be a modern woman and be strong because strength is really not about, you know, overpowering men, but it's, it's strong as just being grounded and being resilient and being able to, to, you know, take care of yourself. But that doesn't mean you don't take care of other people. Is there anything else like that, you know, about your message that feels important for you to, to say, or what you want people to know? about relationships or, or, or is there any place that you feel maybe misunderstood that you feel like you want to clarify for people? Is there a misconception about you? Well, let's go back for one second because I do think it's important and, and now's a good time for people to really put this into practice. So I want to be mm -hmm. action oriented. I'm very action oriented. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, I'm, I did a, an email on my newsletter about like healthy relationship tips. And the one thing that I always get a response on is the sex, the sexual piece. Right. And 
men and women uh, can sometimes be very defensive about prescribing sexual health objectives. And people misunderstand this idea of of obligatory sex, right? Um, there, yeah. there is there is obligatory sex, right? There is detached, unpleasant, resentful, obligatory sex that is not good. We do not want that. Yeah. And and there's a lot of issues going on in a couple that that is happening for. But women especially are defensive when you say, like in the tweet that you read of mine, yeah. um, that even if you're not in the mood or it's inconvenient, what do you mean I'm supposed to have sex with them? Like that, you know, that's a, they think it means that you're almost a victim or something. And mm -hmm. that's where the whole laws around spousal rape and just some really distorted things come have come up. And so men are afraid to push for some of that. Um, and you shouldn't push, obviously, but to stand for it, right? Like to understand that sex isn't always going to be something you're in the mood for right off the bat. So I compare yeah. it to exercise. And this is my point. Um, if you can imagine you know, exercise is something you need to prioritize in your life. Sometimes you do it, you know, people will do it twice a week, three times a week, whatever. Find the rate that is good for you. I can't prescribe a specific amount of time, but obviously you need to be physically active. You need to be sexually active in your relationship. And whether that's once a week, three times a week, or twice a month, um, just make sure that it's your priority, that you're working towards in, you know, injecting uh, vibrancy in your sexual health. And it doesn't have to be sexual intercourse. It can just be a sexual energy between right. the two of you, the way that you play with each other, the way that you talk, texting, touching each other, grabbing butts or kisses or whatever it is. Like you just want to have that sexual playfulness and teasing with each other on a daily basis. There's no reason you can't do it daily. And then maybe you have actual intercourse or oral sex or whatever, a couple of times a week or whatever. But the other point is treat it like it's exercise because you don't, you don't have to be in the mood to go to the gym. You're just disciplined. So even though, you know, you might feel like lazy or whatever, it's for the purpose of the relationship to help keep it running well, that you want to maintain that level of activity. So Put yourself aside and like whatever laziness you have or inconvenience and remember that you're going to feel great at the end of it. You're going to be more connected with all those hormones and oxytocin at the end. And you're going to feel like you've just, yeah, just helped your relationship, um, given it a little boost. <laughs> I love that. That is amazing advice. And it's a great analogy to relate it to exercise. Because of course you don't, you're not always in the mood, but when you get into it, it's, it's, it's always going to be decent mm -hmm. and it's going to bring you closer together exactly it always so leads to intimacy people are stuck at home and feeling disconnected even and so recognizing that you know this a little can go a long way yeah whether it's exercising at home or just being able to connect in a sexually intimate way with your partner well, thank you for sharing yourself thank you for mm -hmm. your wisdom thank you for all the work that you're doing i think it's just fantastic and um, yeah, good to talk to you.